now introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. Today's going to be episode 21, we're going to be doing License to Kill, and we're going to be talking about the Sinaloa Cartel. Um, if, if you didn't know anything about me, I used to be in the, a Border Patrol agent down in uh, Deming, New Mexico, that's where I was stationed at. I spent most of my time in the boot heel of New Mexico. I would go towards Antelope Wells, um, point of entry, to Columbus, New Mexico, Achita, and then I'd spend some time in the Chiricahua Mountains in Arizona. Basically, the entire time I was down there, the cartel that we dealt with almost exclusively that ran that area was Sinaloa Cartel. You know Sinaloa from El Chapo, Guzman. Um, he's probably the most famous one that you have. But uh, Sinaloa is one of the four big ones that um, ran the 70s, 80s, 90s. And there are more today, but Sinaloa is probably the one that everyone's heard about. And the one that I have firsthand experience, you know, battling. So uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a fun episode. We're going to have good, some good guests on today. And we're going to talk about License to Kill, which is one of those movies that just divides the community a lot. Um, I, I just, I try to, I try to watch it. And, I, and the thing I always say is that the movie itself isn't a bad movie for an action movie. It's just not a Bond film. It feels nothing like a Bond film. Nothing about Dalton feels Bond to me. Nothing about that movie feels like a Bond movie. It just really feels just like a, a drug thing. And like I said, it's, whenever drugs are the enemy's main goal, they kind of lose me because maybe just because I've been doing it for so long. I've been a, a, on the war on drugs or whatever um, in real life. I just, I just, it just doesn't move the needle for me at all. I have a lot of problems with the plot. I find License to Kill to be, ugh. But we'll get into that with my, my friend Greg. I just think these, uh, it's always more fun to talk a movie with something than just have me listen to my conjecture. So without further ado, we're going to get into the main topic, the meat of it. We're going to start right into Sinaloa, um, the history of the Sinaloa cartel. And then we're going to go back into the movies and stuff like that. We're going to kind of switch the order around for today. So again, welcome in episode 21, License to Kill, the Sinaloa cartel. So in, in 2006, there were four main Mexican drug trafficking organizations, the Tijuana um, Ariela Felix Organization, the Sinaloa Cartel, the Juarez Vicente Carrillo Fuentes Organization, or the CFO, and also Gulf Cartel. So you look at the map of, of what it was ran, the Tijuana ran the Tijuana Corridor up to Baja, California, that way. Sinaloa owned Arizona and New Mexico and some of Texas, but not very much, pretty much stopped at Juarez. That's where you got the Vicente um, uh, CFO. And then they were the Mexican Mafia and stuff like that. The Juarez cartel, they kind of got mixed into. But when it started out, that's what it was. And it ran up Juarez, um, ran up through El Paso, and they owned um, most of Texas, that little corridor there. And then the Gulf ran southern Texas, like Corpus Christi, and then up towards uh, Louisiana and things like that. Th that th those were the four areas that were... Um, run by these cartels. Now, influx, power grabs, deaths, and arrests with leadership within these organizations have led to faction splitting and more conflict. As of 2019, the DEA has identified nine organizations as Sinaloa, Lozetas, which were the former Gulf cartel enforcers. Some of their cartels trained through special forces, through the U.S. special forces as a security. And then when they actually tried to be more violent and more um, raise up, 
and be more violent as a Gulf Cartel. Gulf Cartel didn't want to. And the Zetas ended up breaking off and becoming their own faction. And we'll talk about them a little more later. Uh, the Tijuana AFO is still around. Juarez CFO. The Beltran La Valla. Golf, the La Familia Micho, Micho, Michoacana, the Knights and Templar, and the Cartel Jalisco, Nuevo, and Generacion. And those are the nine ones that the DA has as of 2009. But there's always there's more factions inside those factions. But those are the main ones that they have identified that have come to power. In mid-2019, the leader of the long dominant Sinaloa Cartel, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, was sentenced to life in a U.S. prison further fracturing the once, you know, solidified uh, cartel. In December 2019, Genaro Garcia Luna, the former head of public security in the Felipe Calderon administration, which he was the president from 2006 to 2012 in Mexico, was arrested in the United States on charges that he had taken enormous bribes from Sinaloa, further eroding public confidence in Mexican government and, uh, efforts. The government's so much weaker in Mexico than the cartel is. I'll tell you a story about when I was in Border Patrol. Um, yeah, I mean, nobody trusts the government in Mexico. It's it's one big, it's too much. The cartels have far more power than the government does. And I'll tell you the story about one time I met um, a general out of um, Juarez when I was on the border. So I was I was hiking, and as you did in, in Border Patrol, you just hiked for miles. That was what you did. That was your job, basically. You'd go to the hike mountains. You'd bring uh, fleers, recons, just any kind of night vision goggles. Um, go up to the top, and then you'd, you'd scan. In some of these recons, you can see rabbit ears for two miles away on these uh, infrared stuff. They're pretty amazing technology that you have. So you just hike up there, and you wait for groups to come across, either you know drug smugglers or, or um, large groups of, of people sneaking in. And one time I was hiking up, and it was just during the daytime, just doing my daytime hikes, trying to pass the time. Because you hiked about three or four miles a day. Uh, on the border when if you wanted to be a go-getter agent you have to hike up a mountain every day so I was going up through and and then all of a sudden um, I see the Mexican military coming through it was one Humvee with a 50 cal gunner and some other um, just regular craft coming regular jeeps coming through you know the Mexican military you know there's a big drug load coming up when the Mexican military comes through and starts clearing out houses now that you don't think of houses on the same when you're on the border I mean it's desolate where you are, I had to drive over 60 miles to even see a, uh, to even see a gas station when you're down there. I mean, it is not, there's, n- you have to see this. And I'll show you, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll show you some pictures of that I took myself. There's nothing there. I mean, it is just an open, wide open range. But you know what big drug loads coming through? Because there'll be these little huts and shacks that are on the Mexican side of the border. And um, bandits and stuff like that will hide in there. And as they come in with the drug loads... They'll just rob the uh, the drug smugglers, and then they'll bring it across the border and then sell it or do whatever they do with it. So I was there and I was hiking, and uh, all of a sudden they must have seen me hiking because I was kind of close to the border. So they turn and they drive. They start driving right at me. And again, there's a guy working the 50, 50 cal gunner on the top, and then a bunch of other people with like scars or something like that. I couldn't tell exactly which gun they were using. So they come out, and the general comes out, and he's not armed, um, but everybody else around him is. And the guy in the gunner, the fifth guy, now, mind you, I just have my pistol and my M4A1 carbine. Now, I love my M4A1 carbine. I love that gun. I, I miss having that as my duty carry, but it's not going to do much against the 50 cal gunner, I can promise you that. Uh, so they came in, and they just charged. So I'm just sitting there, and I mean, what are you going to do? So um, I walked up. 
went introduced myself, started talking, spoke Spanish and English. We'd go back and forth between what he knew of English and what I knew of Spanish. We had a conversation, and the whole time, the all his little cronies around kept egging me on, kept trying to like fake pull the trigger and stuff like that on me. And it's like at that point, you you guys have the 50 cal gunner, you have you know six of you guys all armed. I promise you I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to bait onto this. So it was just like this weird, it was the literal definition of a Mexican standoff. We had ourselves a little Mexican standoff. But the general was polite the entire time we were talking. He was so very, very proper, very polite. We talked about random things about what's going on. Um, And he was like, oh, just routine patrol and all that. And of course I know it's, it's all BS, but... Um, that was the, uh, that was the first time I ever had a 50 cal pointed at me. And, uh, luckily it was only been the only time I've had a 50 cal pointed at me. So I was pretty, it it was an interesting to see, um, the dichotomy of how the general handled himself. Cause he was, like I said, he was proper. He was everything and everybody around him. It was definitely a, uh, a dick measuring contest a little bit, but it was, um, but that's what they do. That's what the Mexican military will come through and they'll make sure there's no huts. There's no bandits in the huts. And that way they safe passage because, you know, they're not really worried about border patrol very much. I mean, we're pretty much, we're easy to beat, especially the places where I was in the boot hill in New Mexico. I mean, it was just, it's just, not, there's nothing there. The only reason you can tell the difference between a border fence and a, um, and a regular cattle fence is that cattle fences only have three barbs and the U.S. Mexican border has four strings of barbed wire. Um. And I get asked all the time, is, would a, would the wall be, should we build the wall? No, the wall is a big giant waste of money. We'll just climb over it. A giant waste of money. Okay. It is a giant waste of money to build a giant wall through the entire Mexican border. It is such a waste of money. I can't even explain how much a big waste of money that is because there's not enough people to man it and they'll just cut it or they'll just drive over it or they'll just hike over it. Huge waste of money. What you need there are, if you're going to do border security, you just use drones or something like that. But the wall itself, the build the wall thing, total waste of money. How did it get so bad? How did the public lose trust in the in the Mexican government and the Mexican cartels? The story kind of begins. Um, it's one of you know violence, evolution, corruption, and massive wealth. Starting in the 1960s, the Sinaloa cartel started out of Sinaloa State in Mexico. The land in Sinaloa is very fertile, and it's ripe for growing and cultivating marijuana. Originally, drug trafficking was a rudimentary operation for these budding organizations. The U.S. border was wide open, and for the most part, it was relatively easy for these farmers to get marijuana across the border into the U.S. From these humble beginnings, ambition and brutality led a simple growing operation to manifest itself into a network of smuggling contraband in a multitude of countries into the United States. The first leader of the modern-day Sinaloa cartel was Pedro Aviles. Pedro began shifting the simple farming industry network approach of marijuana, of years approach because again it just started up just growing weed and bringing it across but in the 1960s the u.s became grew an appetite for more illicit drugs other than marijuana and cocaine heroin but mainly it started branching into cocaine and then it started getting to other things and what it is today is you know methamphetamine fentanyl uh, heroin cocaine crack all that stuff it's mainly um but you're seeing the growth of methamphetamine and fentanyl in, Me- in mexico for sure so as pedro's vision to turn drug training into an entire complex network of uh, poly drug smugglings. As Avilas was building his empire, he brought along his son's friend, Joaquin Guzman, Loera, 
or more commonly known to everybody as El Chapo. He's, he's now become the Michael Jordan of drug cartel, right? Everybody knows El Chapo. So Avilas was killed in a shootout in 1978 with Mexican authorities, and El Chapo became the leader of Sinaloa. As Sinaloa and other cartels looked to further expand their operation, the rise of cocaine in the 1970s opened a new avenue for business development. Sinaloa, the Phoenix Cartel, Juarez Cartel, and others sought out the Medellin Cartel in Colombia for cocaine to smuggle into the United States. At the time, cocaine really isn't grown very well in Mexico. You have to go to Colombia for it. Mata Balestros, a Honduran national that lived in Cuba much of the time, was used as a liaison between these cartels and Medellin. Um, so the, the, they went, when a cartel wanted to get into the cocaine business, they basically sought out uh, Balesteros, and then he would set it up with Medellin's. He was the winning middleman between all these places. As these alliances formed, multiple cartels began doing business with Colombia and all amassing wealth greater than some countries' GDPs. It was going smoothly until the Guadalajara cartel killed an undercover DEA um, agent named Enrique Carmenina. But what happened was the DEA and the U.S. government put massive amounts of pressure to remedy the murder. The Guadalajara cartel was forced into hiding and became fractioned. The Ariano Felix brothers set up camp in Tijuana. The Carrillo Fuentes family moved to Juarez. El Chapo and his partner Hector Luis Palma Salazar remained in the Sinaloa area, which when I say Sinaloa again, it's basically Arizona to Juarez. And, that, and what, what Sinaloa cartel runs into is basically Chicago. So since they have the straight up run, they'll go from Arizona was the main corridor. Now it's become Texas with, uh, with evolving um, drug trades. But you go from Arizona to straight up shot to um, Chicago. And then from Chicago, it goes throughout the country. You can go wherever you want then. So that's why, that's where they got um, El Chapo was that he was surprising Chicago. But basically all their drugs came from the Sinaloa cartel. From there, El Chapo created and manifested one of the most brutal reigns of any organization in the world. He orchestrated mass murders. In 1992, he sent 40 gunmen to a Tijuana cartel party, killing 90 of their members. Sinaloa rose to the top of the cartel world, surpassing even South American DTOs, drug trafficking organizations, that we call them DTOs, but uh, to become one of the most affluent cartels in the world. Along with El Chapo, Ismael Zambada Garcia, El Name, El Mayo, ran Sinaloa. When El Chapo became to think of himself as a rock star, you know, he even did interviews with Sean Penn. While El Chapo began thinking of himself as a rock star, he did interviews with Sean Penn. He, he kind of thought he was a rock star. He was invincible. And El Mayo chose to be much more low-key, instead maintaining his reclusive nature deep within the protection of his Sinaloa members in the hills of the state of, in, in, the, in the hills of Sinaloa. El Chapo had been arrested and escaped from Mexican jails on multiple occasions. One famous escape, he even had a mile-long tunnel dug underneath where he was being held in the Mexican jail, and then he got out by that way. And then he did it multiple times until finally he was brought to U.S. soil. So when El Chapo's reign was over, and in 2017 he was extradited to the United States where he will spend the rest of his life in a U.S. prison. The realization that El Chapo wasn't getting out this time led to an influx of violence over control of Sinaloa. El Mayo and El Chapo's sons were the target of attacks from Damaso Lopez Nunez, known as Licenciado, and his son, Minilik. As the struggle for control of Sinaloa raged on, and as of today, El Mayo is the last remaining leader of the original set of cartel bosses, a relic of the old guard. El Chapo's sons, known as the Chapitos, are now leading Sinaloa into the modern-day trafficking. 
So he's really the, El Mayo is the last of a dying breed. And now you're looking at all these factions within the Zetas and everything like that. There's basically, there's there's not as much struggle. That's why you're seeing a rise of, of violence come out. It's because even though these criminal organizations um, do crime and commit murders, they do one, they're supposed to do, for the most part, they're supposed to be like meaningful ones. These have just become chaos. And whoever reigns the most evil or the most, can do the most messed up stuff, you know, like cutting off heads and decorating them and all these people being hung off of bridges in Mexico. They're the ones that's become, they've they've lost the fact that there was always a reason for it. And if you did a message killing, it was before a message. And now it's just become just who can be the most brutal one. And we talked to, so we talked a lot about the Zetas. And if you were in Southeast Texas, you know about them more or that kind of area. And the Zetas have kind of taken over that area. And the U.S. government is worried about them. And what we talk about a lot of times in this podcast and from other times is when the CIA, the U.S. government arms other people to fight the enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see it in Afghanistan. You see it in Venezuela. You saw it in Cuba. And you see it in actually the Mexican cartels. And I'll give you an example of this. So this is just intel that I got when we were in. Um, we got a guy in, in Border Patrol and I was down there. And debrief him. Uh, there was an operation called Fast and Furious that the U.S. government did, and one of our Border Patrol agents were killed by one of the guns. The ATF was letting guns go from the United States into Mexico. They just let them go. Their idea was that they were going to track them once they got into um, the U.S. and then see where they went. Well, one of those guns that the ATF let the cartels have ended up killing one of our Border Patrol agents, Brian Terry. Uh, in the in the mountains of Arizona, he was on a Bortec officer, which is like the SWAT, and they were doing an operation trying to stop uh, bandits from robbing drug mules because they were violent and they had you know um, ARs and M4s and all this other stuff. Well, one of our agents was shot and killed with a gun that ATF allowed to go into Mexico. Now, one of these guys that we caught on the border worked for Sinaloa, and he said that the reason that um, these guns were being put they, they went under the guy. So the ATF sold this as a, as a we're going to try to track where these guns are going and by serial numbers and all this other stuff. And even as I'm saying it, it sounds so stupid. It must sound so stupid to you guys too. How are you going to track these serial numbers that go in? You're not. You're not there. Once they're in Mexico, what are you? You're looking at serial numbers from everything? No, of course not. The actual reason was that the U.S. government was growing more and more scared that the Zetas over in um, East Texas were going to grow too big. So what they were doing was they were arming the Sinaloa cartel in order so that the Sinaloa cartel could go and fight the Zetas. It's a move that the CIA and uh, the U.S. government has used time and time and time again. And it ended up getting one of our agents killed in the Zetas. So these, this is the kind of thing that the U.S. government's worried about. It was a cartel like the Zetas who, again, they're especially for, special force trained. This is years ago. There's some people who were initially trained. But basically, the foundation of what they were trained at by the U.S. Special Forces uh, lives on in the Mexican. And these people are the ones that the U.S. government is worried about coming into power. So what do they do? They arm them with U.S. guns so that they can go fight the Zetas. Um, you know, I lived it for a couple of years. And there was, uh, we heard one story where um, an owner wanted to keep his shop. So initially, rent was $10,000 a month, 10,000 pesos a month. And then next month, all right, it's 15. He's like, okay, we still have to pay. You have no choice because you're being told to pay it. And next week, it's 20. And then one, it's up all the way up to 15. Suddenly, the shop owner said, no, can't do it anymore. So he doesn't pay, doesn't pay, doesn't pay. He gets drug out to the center of the, of the town. 
and then he gets a foot cut off in the middle of the of the town and the person who's doing the foot cutting is the chief of police in this Mexican town I mean that's that's a different way of life and, you know I don't it'll never understand what that's like and God I, I don't live in anywhere where that is a possibility but this is the realization of these cartels because they have more money and power in our radio systems. So we have, um, our radio systems are pretty encrypted, but they're basically one stage encryption and there are different stages of encryptions. Um, so it's, it's, you can, it's hard to break an encrypted one with just one signal, but what the cartels have are a three stage encryption. Some of the best ones that have the best loads that are coming through. Three stage encryption, which means that there are three different towers that it has to bounce off of. Every time it bounces off a tower, it gets a new code. That new code sends that wave to another transmitter who gets another code. So the only way to break these codes is you have to break three different codes in order to intercept the, the uh, radio transmissions. The cartel has that. We don't. The U.S. doesn't. And the Mexican military certainly doesn't. Uh, so the, the, there are rudimentary ways that you can get into their comms, but they, when they want a, a really expensive load to come in, that is not, they're not doing that on, you know, your uh, walkie-talkies. Uh, that is coming on three-code three encryption satellites. That is more than what we have um, on the border. So that's the battle that you're facing. That's the battle that you, the Mexican government is facing because they have an interest. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to get killed. They want to keep their loads coming through. And the U.S. government's like, eh, we don't wanna, we're not really a huge fan of drugs. But if they come in, what are you going to do? So it's much more important for them, and that's the battle that they're facing in this war on drugs and the fact that it is massive amounts of wealth. Again, the cartels of the same part have more money than most people's, than some countries' GDPs. It's an insane amount of wealth that comes out of this. It's a lot of stuff to fight over. And modern-day trafficking looks much, more diff looked much differently than it did in the 1960s and 70s as the demand for different types of drugs has changed. In the 1960s and 70s, drug use was cocaine, and marijuana, and uh, both start from farms. Well, in 2020, fentanyl, carfentanyl, methamphetamine rule the day, both of which are chemi chemically created. This is, uh, you know, these are, carfentanyl and fentanyl have taken over heroin as a drug of choice. You can't even, uh, I work drugs in Baltimore City, you don't find real heroin anymore. Not like raw, actual, grown heroin that you'd get from Afghanistan is almost all fentanyl. I can't tell you especially on the east side of Baltimore, it's very hard to find actual heroin. It's all this fentanyl. It's all being made in these super labs down in Mexico. Methamphetamine, same thing. So you can cut out the middlemen of Colombia, Afghanistan, all these other places where you have to outsource the actual grown things. Carfentanil, fentanyl, and methamphetamine, you can just grow in super labs. And they're expensive to build at first, but you make your money five million fold very quickly in this, in this drug trade. Chicago's the same way. Um, all, all fentanyl, really. You're seeing it. It's kind of changing all the big cities, especially in Sinaloa runs, Sinaloa owns Chicago, um, for sure. And a lot of Baltimore that I have is run from New York, which comes from everything. Most loads come from New York, then down through. But Chicago is run by Sinaloa. Make no mistake about it. All these cartels have morphed from highly organized hierarchies to horizontally formed cartels. And the violence has grown exponentially. Without strong control and strong organization, rules in more of these criminal enterprises have changed. Uh, again, like who can be the bloodiest? Who can be the cruelest? Who can be the most feared? It's not a uh, mafioso, you come to me. 
on the name of my nose, Manny. I know. My impressions are so good all the time. That one is one of my favorites, my Marlon Brando. You come to me on this, the name of my nose, Manny. I know. Close your eyes. You think of, you think of Marlon Brando. Like a young, when Marlon Brando was Marlon Brando. One more time. And you come to me on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> Last time, I promise I won't do it again. And now I'm going to bring in my good friend. Uh, I've worked with him in drugs for a long time. He was my partner for a while. And uh, we're going to bring him on. And he's going to talk about License to Kill. And we'll see how it goes. Let's go. Let's go talk about the actual movie. Let's Welcome in, a good friend, Gregory Edelman. Worked with you for a long time. Welcome Thank in. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to time, be here. First time we're doing this in person. It's way better to do it in person and drinking. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> not absolutely. That, not that I haven't enjoyed the Skype points, but there's just something about like drinking together. Oh, no. 100%. Talking bond. Absolutely, right? No, 100%. So today we're going to be talking about License to Kill, my friend. Now, we just went and saw Goldfinger in the theaters together. Now, can we talk about that experience? Fantastic. Amazing, right? right? You, can't, you can't go back. It's not the same. Right? If you didn't get to experience it, you know, when it came out, and now, especially with the new sound, the way it looks on the big screen, it, it's a whole other experience. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't stress that if, if people haven't seen it, they got to go see it. It's yeah, nineteen sixties movie. You see it in theaters; it holds up. It was amazing. Every part of that was amazing. Now, fast forward, we watched License to Kill together. Can we talk about that experience together? Maybe not so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not as much luster, right? Yeah, I just you look at the difference between the experience you have watching a well played out story with amazing set pieces, right. like grandeurs, all those other things, and then we watch Lethal Weapon meets Miami Vice meets poor Disney Epcot. It was <laughs> yeah, that might be the best comparison. Actually, put all that into one mash of terrible. Yeah. So how how into Bond are you? What was your first? What is your first Bond experience? And I'm, thank God it wasn't licensed to kill. No, no. So, um, 97, No Time to Die. Um, excuse me. Tomorrow Never Dies? Yes, Tomorrow Never Excuse me. So, um, it'll, it'll probably be, you know, 2097 before we actually see No Time to Die. So, uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, I came in and, and I've, I've been a Bond fan ever since. I mean, not as uh, maybe an illustrious fan as, as you, per <laughs> se. Just maybe looking at this small what landscape here. This is one of them everybody has? This isn't... Uh, maybe. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, you know, but I've always found it um, fascinating. You know, um, some of the books uh, that I've gotten to uh, read have been excellent. You know, just the, the idea of, of Bond and what... You just got read uh, Anthony Horowitz's too. Yes. I, I gave you which, which is Forever in a Day. Yeah, which is fantastic, by the way. I yeah. really have enjoyed that. And... It's just the whole mentality of like how that the persona, the character, the development uh, into the chicks. Of course, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know why. We're... Come on, clearly. I mean, the fact that a, a series has their own category of just Bond girls yeah. that kind of tells you that, like, obviously that's something to look forward to, no matter what movie it is. So yeah, and I, even in this movie, that was not bad. Not bad. I know. Again, we like I said, we just saw Goldfinger, and again, like classic. Just like it. 
We're 30 years old giggling at pussy galore. <laughs> Porsche. <laughs> like literally every time. Every time we go, yeah. Porsche, we're like giggling like Thankfully idiots. that theater was pretty much empty because of COVID. Yeah, so. yeah. Just, it was just us giggling. <laughs> <laughs> so it was we, totally worth it though. Oh, it was so good. So then we, we come in here and, and we watch License to Kill. And uh, just from the start, from the onset with the helicopter and the, the, the DEA and they're like coming down like Sanchez. It just the whole movie from start to finish lets you know this doesn't feel like a Bond movie. No, it it, it doesn't have the same. I mean, I, you know, and everybody might have their own opinion, but I, I definitely think that without question that this movie is it, it wasn't made for Bond. That Bond, this isn't a character, or this isn't a villain. Bond would be going after. Who wants to go to Florida? No, nobody does. <laughs> I mean, they have their unless you're like stalking Florida, man. Then I get it. You know, yeah, always a but, great story, yeah. but. No, I just I don't think that this is really a great, you know, uh, chapter for Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my worst scenes that I saw, like when Felix is sitting there and, and he's going, "See you in hell, Sanchez." Like, like, doesn't even fit at all with the character of Felix. Doesn't fit at all no. in the movie, the plot. It makes no sense that this good guy is like being fed to sharks and be like, "See you in hell, Sanchez." Yeah, it's, uh, like there's not much of a. That would be something I think uh, a character might say to someone who has a, more of an attachment to, or maybe he's had an ongoing thing with. That's just a it's TV movie stuff. Uh, it's a terrible, it's just a terrible line in that movie. You know, Felix is a great character for who he is. You could definitely, you know, take the angle of the CIA drugs and the fact that, especially if you want to talk about how it's the maybe the U.S. government's fault and how they're in that situation because they've been. I don't know, buying drugs from one, selling to another, causing a war. That might make more sense. Yeah. This one just, nah, nah, we're just going to feed you to Sarks and just call it a day. It's fine. And, and also, yo, Bond, chill with the wife. <laughs> I feel like that's a really great discussion that's piece. Way, way um, too many lip kisses. Yeah. It, Even like, a, you just, the, 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 the correct thing is a one hand shoulder pat, not a full on lip kiss. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a cheek kiss at the most, because you know that because of the friendship thing. Maybe that's a. It is Florida. I think though. that's. It is Florida though, and there are way too many swingers clubs in Florida for me to just dispel the fact that it's okay. I'm I mean, just... I don't want to think about Felix in a swingers club. So let's just, especially, <laughs> let's just move right on out of that topic. You don't want to go down. That, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I don't know if we. I don't know if anyone wants to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> what do you think about Sanchez himself? So uh, the idea. I mean, if you want to look at it as just a straight drug dealer, fine. Um, you know, I wouldn't call him like the greatest of villains, mm-hmm. even for just a regular action film, let alone a Bond film. Gotta love the Pedaguana, I guess. I mean, that's definitely a, a, a great, you know... <laughs> it's a baller move, just to walk in with an iguana on your shoulder. I mean, who else do you know has that? I mean... To be fair, I can't think of one off the top of my head. If anyone can, I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to watch it, actually. Yeah, some of the action stuff is cool. When he does the planes and he goes in the plane, he goes in and he throws the money out. Mm-hmm. Some of the action pieces are cool. Um, I get, some of it, I mean, I, the Coast Guard and like all this. I don't. What are, I don't know what they're doing, and I don't know how they're really involved. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I like, you know, some of the, the escape and on the highway. That's kind of cool, especially because the keys, and that makes sense, at least for the bridge or, yeah. you know, that over the ocean. That's cool. I like that. Just because it's uh, at least fits in well. What about Dalton himself? How do you find him? How do you receive him as a Dalton. Bond? So, 
I know a lot of people may or may not like him. Me, uh, personally, I, I find him amusing. I, yeah. I don't know if he fits as a great Bond, per se, but, I mean, I think he at least gives it a great effort. Um, he puts it, I, I feel like he at least puts some energy into it, except it almost feels more of like a gag in this movie. It's he, not, he's, he's not taking so this one. so serious. He's so, it's like, it's too much at some point. You're like, oh my God, bro, like chill, mm-hmm. like chill time. With his widow's peak and his terrible outfits and he's just like always angry at the same point. He just, for me, just, he lacks the, he just has the dark brooding, okay? And even that is kind of silly. But there's so much more to Bond than just being like... Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed... I mean, we even talked about when we watched uh, Goldfinger and how it was... You know, I I don't even know why I missed that, but I found it amazing. Just the the beginning and the end. You know, the the death scenes for electricity and just the great little Mm one-liners. You know, he doesn't have it. Shocking. Yeah, I... (laughs) Absolutely shocking. I don't find... (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm gonna have... I'm definitely gonna say that too many times. But this is the best way. I... The fact that you get to say that is just... It's <laughs> you great. must be joking. I mean, we, that's why we're not seeing that often in films, though, because, I mean, a lot of people might not find that appropriate. Well, anymore. I don't know. Well, so. we do. We do. And it's an excellent, excellent name. But... Mm. Yep. Yeah, when it comes to Dalton, I just... I, I wish for so much more, because I think in some other movies, he's he is funny. It's just... Yeah. Maybe not as a Bond. I don't know. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that's the whole sentiment about this whole movie, is that... Um, in and of itself, it could be like an 80s film that you'd forget and maybe one time put, see on, a, on TNT or something. But to put it in the Bond pantheon, especially, like I said, we just juxtapose going to see Goldfinger in the theaters and then so they have to sit there and watch that TV movie of, of Lessons to Kill. It just, it's just a huge letdown for me. No, I, I agree. I mean, even the, as we talked about before, the roadhouse scene. The roadhouse. I love roadhouse. Was, I do love the bar scene. That's so funny. <laughs> Just shotguns through walls, plywood palace of the bar. Like, that's roadhouse. Great. Yeah. That's, you can't go wrong. No. no, no I mean, that's, at least you can say that's a human. Why is she scene. sitting there with the, the shotgun and stuff in her lap? I don't, it doesn't make sense. Like, right? Like, that. that's not no. a, that's not a built scene. And even the way he finds it, it does, it's, it's just poor writing to me. It's like, mm. okay, and then all of a sudden it just, it's just too easy. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. But the way I always do it, I have to always ask this. So here's, here's a real tough question, okay? You've got a chance, okay? Be with any, any of the Bond girls. Pick any single one of them. But afterwards, you got to get dumped in the shark tank. You got to, it was worth it, Sanchez. Yeah, I mean, do I get to say that? I mean, is it yes. Sanchez standing over me? Sanchez, yes, you actually get to to brag that you actually got I mean, one of the Bond girls. Yeah, but who's the one? Who's the one worth being dipped in the shit? Who are you dipping it in for the Shark Tank for? So I might, I might take a page from one of your other uh, prior visitors. Uh, I'm gonna have to step in a Quantum of Solace, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to, dude. Strawberry, come on. Strawberry Fields. Why not? Oh, Why you know what? On? I didn't. You know, I didn't see the redhead. I didn't see the redhead angle. I get it. Those gingers. You gingers. We stick together, bud. <laughs> ginger swine. Got, yeah, stick look, together. There's only so many of us. We got to stick together. No, you know what? It's not a. You know, Gamar. She, she. I can see it. I can see it. I'm just saying. I. Way to be. Way to be unique with it. Yeah, Strawberry Fields. I, huh? I'd have to go with that. And not only that. Um. To be fair, if I get to say that, Sanchez, he has to have the iguana on his shoulder when I'm going down. <laughs> I just. I don't know why. I just. I need that. I need it. I, I ate strawberry fields. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's, that's how you yeah. your very last words. I'm okay with it. I mean, and if I end up like Felix, I mean, I'm, I'm still going to be in one piece, I guess. Right? So I guess I'm all right. I mean, sort could, of, right? Could be worse, I guess. Yeah. It could be worse. Greg, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Buddy. Oh, thank you. As always, Greg, thanks for your license to kill. Some of you like it, some of us are the same boat to be moving. Come on, let's go. Yeah! Let's go! All right, Greg, thanks for coming on today. It took forever to get you on. God, kept ducking me. But it's good to finally got him on. So we, in the, just, just to kind of close it out, uh, these, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, how do you solve a problem where there's such high demand? You know, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like, the drug problem in the United States. How do you solve that? I don't know. It's not. It hasn't been through legality. That's for damn sure. People still want to get high. How do you change that? And you look at other countries that don't have this pervasive drug use problem that the United States have. I don't know. How do you How do you change that? You know, the only reason that the cartels are rich beyond belief is because the United States pays beyond belief to get their product. I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know what the secret is. I don't know what the uh, the answer to stopping the drug problem is. I don't know. Maybe just maybe Nancy had it right. Either just just say no, and if you don't say no, that's all we're gonna do. Just that's a, that's a, the policy. Make it legal. Make it Oregon <laughs> at this point. Just make it Oregon. Make everything legal. And if you don't want to, just say no. But I can tell you what I would not say no to: uh, seeing Lupe's boobs or Pam Bouvier's. This has been Quantum of History. I haven't done that in a while. I feel like I, I needed to bring it back, you know? Uh, this has been Quantum of History. This has been Donnie Walden. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're not subscribing, subscribe. Subscribe. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Take care. And as always, stay positive. Hit that subscribe button. Comment down below. And leave a like in